welcome to talc teaching and learning consultation skills this is the talc talks podcast helping everyone who sees patients to improve their consultation skills to get better outcomes and this approach can even increase your job satisfaction hello my name's Avril Danchak. I'm a GP and medical educator in Manchester. And this module addresses a lot of aspects of learning consultation skills, which might be unfamiliar if you're new to primary care, if you're new to the NHS, or simply new to the whole idea of specific consultation skills development and education. So in this talk talk and a related one, we're going to be taking a deep dive into issues connected with non-verbal communications. That means everything except the words we use. And I'm joined today by my friend and colleague, Mo. Mo, would you like to introduce yourself? Hi, Avril. Thanks for inviting me to join this podcast. I'm Mohan Kumar. I'm a GP, GP educator, and I work as an associate dean in the northwest of the UK. Uh, we've had these conversations previously when we've been working together on consultation skills. So I'm really excited to be talking about nonverbal communication today. Great, thank you. Before we go into things in detail, uh, um, everybody talks about nonverbal communications. They often just mean voices and gestures and, and kind of position of the body and things. But I, I'm wondering how come this can be a problem in consultations with patients? I come to this and I came to this subject initially because English is not my first language and I was quite curious about the the way language is communicated which is beyond just the words we learn and when I first arrived here in this country to work in the NHS I realized that the way I say some of the words even though I might have read them on the book or maybe may have even heard them on TV programs or films, there's a lot of difference in the way the intonation takes place. There are different gestures that accompany the words which can change the message we are giving to each other, uh, both in terms of professional communication and also personally when I was communicating with my friends or family here, I realized how, how much of a difference there can be uh, in individuals, in cultures, in professionals and lay people, how we communicate right. messages. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. And I suppose a lot of supervisors and mentors and trainers observe non-verbal -communi non communications that they think perhaps are not quite as good as they could be. So how do they approach this or how do they feel about approaching this kind of issue, do you think? I have observed non-verbal communication elements both in my trainees and I when I worked with other trainers as well and personally I experienced the ability to observe but then when it came to giving the feedback to the learner you realize that how personal this can be and how it can sound very intrusive when you're talking about somebody's facial expressions or the way they communicate. This can be a particularly difficult problem if the trainer and the trainee are from different cultures because the educators tell me when I've run workshops on this subject that they felt a bit hindered because they didn't want to be thought to be telling 
people from other cultures that this is how you should talk English or it's the right way to do. So they needed to get past that hurdle of being considered maybe racist or aggressive or microaggressive when they're talking about facial expressions, when they're talking about language. And they felt that the lack of a framework which gives them the ability to feedback to learners. For example, we have a framework and an assessment tools for describing communication um, and consultation skills and that learners accept that feedback in that structure because there are descriptors uh, and it neutralizes that. It's not me telling you, this is just the framework for the best way to communicate a message to a patient. But when it comes to non-verbals, I realized very quickly that even in undergraduate or postgraduate curriculum, non-verbals surprisingly haven't been an area of uh, sub subject of interest or discussion among teachers and learners, considering as in primary care and in, in a lot of what we do with our patients, we communicate and converse regularly and we use our gestures and our voice all the time. It's high time that we have a kind of framework, which is why we both decided this will form an important part of uh, the talk resources, the non-verbal communication element. I think that's really, really interesting. And I, I think it can be very helpful for people to kind of bear in mind that in a way, um, when we speak, we're using language. We might be speaking English or French or Urdu or whatever language we're speaking. But there's another language that we're all speaking alongside, which is um, how we use our bodies, how we use our voices, how we use our hands, perhaps all kinds of different things, what position we have. And these two podcasts, these two talk talks are going to be a really close look at that. And I think it will be very helpful for people to realise that there are ways of studying this and that we, just as you might say to somebody, actually the proper word for that thing you're holding in your hand is a book, but because you didn't know that vocabulary word, that would just be a natural thing to say. We could maybe also say, and if you want to convey this meaning non-verbally, this is how you do it in the, in the non-verbal language kind of thing. So today we're going to focus on the voice. Now, when we speak, obviously there are words and there are different languages, but there are other factors to do with the voice that can communicate things. And I think that's called paralinguistics. And I'm wondering if you could explain exactly what paralinguistics means. It's a, it's a rather technical word, but I think most people will understand what it is when you explain it. For a lot of people, once again, when I looked into this subject of nonverbal communication, even I made the assumption that it's talking about gestures, facial expressions, eye contact, even the proximity we have to a person and the social distance we maintain are elements of nonverbal communication. And then it struck me that the way we use the voice, uh, the, way we, the, the way we intone, express words, can vary between individuals, between cultures, and between languages. And the subject of not the actual content, not the words themselves, but the intonation, the pitch, the frequency, the speed with which we talk and express ourselves, can convey different meanings, even when the words are the same. And this, interestingly, when I started having a conversation, even in my own home, when I first met my wife, who's from England, um, I didn't understand that the, the auditory pitch 
of uh, the way I say something. For example, in, in India, um, where I come from, you can convey please and thank you just by the tone of the word. So I could say, um, can I have a glass of water? <laughs> I if I say it in Tamil, it'll sound even more. And the please is implied in the way the, the sentence is pitched. Whereas when I came here, even with the, the most intonation I could make it, can I have a glass of water, was met with what is the magic word? And I first thought the magic word was Shazam or Abracadabra. Then I realized it's thank you or please. Mm -hmm. uh, so I realized that for the Western ears, however you intone the request, it may still sound aggressive if you don't add the please or the thank you. Whereas in the East, the please or thank you are considered redundant. Mm -hmm. um, and in fact, can be met with a reverse aggression where people say, how dare you say please to me? I'm not that kind of a formal individual. Right. I'm your close yeah. friend. Yeah. So it has a completely opposite effect in there. Mm -hmm. So then I realized that even the decibel level, some cultures have a, a different auditory pitch or tone mm -hmm. in, in talking. When, I, when we have been on holiday to Greece, I remember our children were saying, why is everybody arguing? Because for them, even the most passionate speech, if it's at a loud level, can be heard as an aggressive speech so there's a lot to do with the tone the way we express the words and how they convey the meaning and this aspect of nonverbal communication is called paralinguistics and it's called nonverbal because it's not about the words it's about the sound and the pace right okay so so i can easily see that um all languages i guess have it um that the, the way you, the sort of tone of voice and the way you say something can convey meaning quite separate from the words. And in English, in fact, this can even convey things opposite to the words sometimes. Like um, if in Scotland uh, you say to some, somebody something like, um, I'm working very hard. And if they say, I right, they're saying, yes, right. But they're really saying, I right, I don't believe you. I don't think you are doing that. So just the tone of voice can actually completely undermine the message that, that is in the words. And I, I think I'm sure other languages have similar things. So let's have a, a bit of a think about, um, I think you've already given some examples of where some miscommunication can occur if the paralinguistics isn't understood like you said you know somebody in greece might seem to be angry or shouting if you didn't know that it's normal to discuss passionately the price of the eggs in the market or whatever it is that people are doing so it's, it's clear that we can get misunderstandings there um, and i thought let's try and unpick the different elements of paralinguistics bit by bit and talk about all these different elements and how to use them more skillfully so i thought we might start with the speed of speech you know how fast somebody's talking what kind of non-verbal messages can the speed of the speech tell us do you think you you realize that the speed of the speech people have their own natural style and the pace and they also vary the speed depending on the level of emotion which may be attached to that so some may misinterpret the speed to the emotion so if you are talking english but at the speed of your native language that can be misunderstood as either rushing through something 
or the fact that you may not want to stay on it and not convey the right message. So when you're, there is a standard accepted speed where the listening ear can understand the message being conveyed. And there is a range within which people are able to comprehend the message being given. If you slow down too much, it can come across as irritating. And if you speed up too much, you may lose the message in translation. So in any human contact or communication, there is a speed at which the listener understands the language being spoken. Now the speed can vary with different languages and anybody who's tried to learn Spanish or French off an app or on a lesson and then when they actually arrive in Spain, realize how fast. Yeah. Uh, I'm sure it's the same for a non-English speaker yeah. Yeah. when they come to Liverpool or Scotland or yeah. Manchester, yeah. that the speed yeah. can, can vary. So the speed of the words being conveyed can actually have a, a high impact on the message being given the ability of the listener to comprehend the message, but also to convey certain emotions to the person as well. I'd like to pick up on that last point, because you've been talking here about, I think really about the clinician as a speaker and being aware of how quickly one is speaking and uh, not to be too slow, not to be too quick. But also there's a lot of information to be gleaned from observing the patient's speed of speech, isn't there? Can you say something about that? Like what do we need to observe when we're listening to patients and the, the speed at which they speak? Uh, when I was talking about the speed, I, I really meant both parties in a way, and you're right, because as much as it's important to convey the message, part, a, a big part of consultation skills is listening and the being able to listen and understand and comprehend what the patient is trying to convey, but equally what emotion they may be expressing by the speed of their conversation. Mm -hmm. So when you're asking an open question and the patient's speed of language can imply anxiety, can imply the fact that they may be rushing off somewhere or they may be too embarrassed to talk about the subject matter. So there's a lot of nuances to the speed. Mm. The only way we can understand is to, if we feel that the speed is conveying something other than the message itself, it's useful to ask the speaker or convey to the speaker that I'm having some difficulty understanding what you're saying or I'm sensing some anxiety, am I right or wrong? So clarifying yeah. with the message giver is a really useful step in in understanding what's actually going on rather than assuming that the speed means something. something. And it can happen in a, a trainer-learner conversation as well. And sometimes trainers perceive things with the speed. And in an exam setting, the speed can be a hindrance mm. to with the short time span when somebody is attempting a CSA or an RCA, the speed can be a huge hindrance right. yeah. in, in communicating and consulting. As well. I'd, I'd like to just pick up on that a bit more because I think you've made a really interesting point there that, for example, let's say you notice a patient is talking very quickly. So there'll be, there'll be some words there, but it might be difficult to be sure what that speed means. So sometimes it's helpful just to notice it and say, well, I notice you're speaking very quickly or I notice you're speaking quite slowly and hesitantly. I I'm wondering what's behind that. And that leaves it very open. 
and and somebody might say well you know I'm, I'm actually really anxious about this problem that I've come to talk to you about because then that's what and then they're very anxious or it might be that somebody's saying well it's hard for me to talk about this and that might convey a low mood or a difficult emotion but if you're not sure you can describe what you've noticed fast or slow and then maybe just ask for clarification and I think that it's okay to do that if you do that in a nice way because people will, will be happy that you're interested in them. So I want to talk a bit more about something else you mentioned before, which is about how loud people are speaking because a lot of people have different levels of loudness in how they speak. And I, I wondered if we could start with patients here first and then go on to talk about clinicians. When patients are talking, what does loud or quiet speech mean, signify? The loudness can be can signify their own hearing aspects because people who have got slightly reduced hearing may be used to talking quite loud themselves there's also an interesting cultural connotation to loudness there is a sense that if you feel the other person doesn't understand your language clearly for some reason the human brain increases the decibel level as if the same message spoken loudly can get through. Uh, I've experienced that myself when I first came in and when I've been to shops and if somebody perceives that I've not been in the country for too long, they actually talk very loud and very slow, like you're talking to children. <laughs> and the slowness can be useful, but it can also assume and can be a stereotype, which can be a hindrance. So, so, so patients who may think the doctor is from another culture and may notice an accent, may start to talk louder in English, thinking that that would help the doctor to understand. Oh. It, does, it's, it doesn't have a kind of racist connotation, but it's just that they are trying to get the message across. Right. But this can lead to uh, the other person feeling a bit patronized. Mm. So this can happen quite in both, mm. both ways. Mm. It, it can be the, the doctor conveying a message in English, but if they perceive the, the patient has uh, a different first language. Uh, they can understand English, uh, do not need an interpreter, but at the same time, they, they are heavily accented, that the doctor may start to feel loud. And there is no evidence to say loudness would make it more understood. No. Um, no. The other reasons for patients being loud can be a, a sense of despair or aggression. If they sense conflict, the emotions can raise the voice level. There are a lot of interesting interactions in the reception where you can see a, a frustration of the patient being expressed through loudness of the voice. And this can be quite an assault to the reception who's trying to calm them down, can lead to a lot of conflict situation where the person is saying, well, don't, I, I can sense you're angry. Whereas the person's emotion can be despair and frustration, not necessarily anger. Yeah, I think that's interesting because um, it's almost like a non-verbal clue, isn't it? It's like a, it's a, it's um, it's a message that you think, well, why is this person speaking louder and louder? Uh, and it's almost like a, a message in itself that you have to listen to. And of course, it often means that the person speaking feels you haven't understood or haven't heard them properly. And so before you start saying calm down and let's all be quiet and all the rest of it you might have to literally say 
what I'm hearing is you're saying this and that seems to be very concerning you. You're concerned about this particular thing that you've told me about in this very loud voice because that obviously is what somebody wants to emphasise and as long as they feel that you've really heard them and, and the only way they'll know that is by you feeding it back to them and say, look, I know you're really worried about your prescription or whatever it is and I'm going to do what I can to help, then, then that won't calm them down. But I think there's another issue that we talk about in talc uh, module two when we talk about relationships and empathy which is actually how matching and mirroring uh, sometimes can be helpful or unhelpful so if i raise my voice a bit because i'm frustrated but then you raise your voice even more we're going to get a conflict whereas if i lower my voice a bit when i hear you know if i if if somebody's speaking loudly to me and i feed back what they're saying but in a calm and quiet voice and say oh i can really understand you're worried about your prescription you're concerned that we haven't got it right or there was a mistake or whatever it is then they start to mirror you as well so these things can be a quite potent way of altering the relationship can't they really between. I agree. Uh, one of the other things is we do tend to teach our learners to ask open questions, not to interrupt the flow. At the same time, if the person expressing the emotion and if the emotion is not acknowledged, can get even more loud or maybe more despairing. So it's an important cue, the non-verbal intonation or the loudness of the voice to actually acknowledge the emotion. Uh, that's not an interruption that helps to eliminate the repetition mm. of, of the message or even an increasing sense of despair. If the doctor mm. remains very quiet when the patient is actually expressing despair, that may be viewed as they're not really getting what I'm trying yeah, to say. Yeah, they're not really listening properly. Yeah. So it comes under kind of slightly advanced consultation skills where, yes, you shouldn't interrupt and you allow the narrative flow but if the narrative flow quite earlier on has got a non-verbal cue of an emotion, it's nice to acknowledge and capture and empathize with that emotion very briefly, allowing them to continue with the message without repetition or increasing sense of despair. Well, I think that that's another very important point that you've brought up there, which is, uh, firstly, you can often acknowledge, for instance, if somebody talking about pain, you can acknowledge that you empathise with their pain with the shape of your face or the, the body language that you that you show. But also, when we are feeding back to people what we've heard, which is like a mini summary or an internal summary, summaries have to include the facts. You know, your leg's been very painful since you had that operation is the facts. But you also have to include the feelings, which has been really frustrating for you because you can't walk the dog or whatever it is. And I think if people hear that their facts have been heard, but their feelings have been heard as well, and the feelings are often in the tone of voice, not in the in the words. People don't always say, I'm very frustrated, but you can tell by listening to them, by the, the loudness or whatever it is, then they'll feel a lot happier. And I want to explore this question of tone of voice a little bit more now as well, because it's not just how loud we are, but there are other kinds of things about tone or, or the pitch of the voice. So how does that come into it? You know, like... Um... It's like the example you gave earlier about, I've been working really hard, all oh, right, you are. <laughs> tone can give a lot more coating to the message we are giving. It can convey empathy. It can convey irony or sarcasm. It can convey anger, urgency, frustration. Tone can be very encouraging. 
for the narrative to continue or it can be also perceived as very indifferent to the message being given and this is a very uh, it's a potential area of a lot of confusion where a person's individual tone if it's not modified to convey the message being given can act as a hindrance to the message or may give the wrong kind of message um, you can we have this I realized in, in, in England when when I first met people that they will say if my mother calls me by my first name or, or, or somebody else calls you by the surname it can mean something conveyed about being disciplined or you're going to be told off about something uh, and also some languages um, you find that a person communicating in their mother tongue the tone is very aligned with the message when they're trying to speak the same message in a different language which they've learned a second language if they're not practiced it fluently the tone can be not aligned with the message and you often see this happening when you are in, in a observed consultation where you know very well that the learner is a very empathetic person but when they are trying to convey empathy or saying I'm sorry um, if the tone doesn't align with I'm sorry it can sound almost like I think we use the term flat pack empathy in another chapter a bit mechanical uh, sort of yeah it sounds very mechanical and robotic and when a person is highly focusing on speaking in a different language also trying to convey the message trying to listen it can be quite a stressful situation and when stress happens the tone can be affected deeply so this needs to be acknowledged feedback and also explored deeper uh, mm. to get the message aligned with the tone yeah i mean you can sort of play with this a bit can't you because for example if somebody in english i'm sure it's true in other languages but if somebody offers you a piece of cake you can say oh yes thank you and that probably means i'd like some cake but you could say thank you and that could mean why are you offering me cake when you know i'm on a diet or you could raise your hand and say oh no thank you yeah you know thank you and that could mean you know it's nice of you to offer but i don't want it right now and the words are the same um but it's just whether it's a, a rising fall or a dying fall or, or things like that and i think i've often heard people hear um emotional messages from patients such as something like you know my husband died last week which is a, a huge thing for somebody to experience and somebody will say i'm sorry to hear that and they you might be saying you know i i, I got a little paper cut on my way into work this morning from the newspaper i'm sorry to hear that it, it it's whereas you need to put warmth or kindness or encouragement and i don't think that's that easy to do and that that's why actors who can do it get paid a lot of money isn't it because they can put it on but in a way when we're working we have to use some of those self-conscious skills to be encouraging or warm or kind or something like that um, I want to move on a little bit to really think about the ways in which we can get better at understanding paralinguistic communications. That's to say tone of voice and all these things. So have you got any ideas about how people can get better at, first of all, at picking up the nuances that patients are saying, but also perhaps later on we'll talk about correcting our own speech. So how could people get better at picking up the nuances of what patients are saying to them? Paralinguistics work very well when to, to go back to the the first principles of 
consultation skills, we need to have good quality speaking skills, but very good quality listening skills as well. And I think paralinguistics is one of those areas where it's vitally important to tune your ear first, both to listen to the intonation, the pace, the frequency, to interpret the message being given, but also to learn then how to use that intonation with the person in front of you so that you're aligned in your tone and pace and rhythm. So we talked about a little bit about mirroring um, and in some circumstances that can be a hindrance, especially when it's loud or when it's a conflict situation. But in a lot of other circumstances, when you're expressing empathy, the tone can be in tune with the person in front mm. of them. When they're talking in a hushed voice, mm. if you are talking too loud, then the, the emotions may not be matched. So I think listening and teaching to listen mm. and teaching to listen to the non-verbal message mm. would be the first step. So let me just... Watching a consultation. Can, yeah, can I pin that down a little bit more? Because... I think what you're saying there is really important is that before you can manipulate these things, you need to understand them in the first place. So are you saying what somebody should perhaps uh, listen to a, a video of a consultation and instead of thinking about the words the patient's using, saying, well, well, what kind of feelings are conveyed by their voice? Describe their voice. Is it loud, fat, you know, quiet, fast, slow? You know, what's the tone of their voice? And then say, well, what does that mean? What is that conveying sort of thing? So that would be one way just to improve your listening skills right at the beginning. Absolutely. Obviously, with trainers' range of experience, educators can invite the learner to listen to different clips of the consultation or listen to the whole consultation, but focus entirely on the non-verbal paralinguistic tones and messages and invite discussion around what you think they mean. So this improves their observation skills because in a real life consultation you need to have this happening at such lightning speeds and your ability to recognize them should be tuned so much so you don't have time to pause and ask all the time so recognizing the tone pitch frequency and recognizing that it's changing or it's trying to convey something else would be the first step and i think even turning off the video and just listening to the consultation or closing your eyes and listening to it is a really good step mm. in tuning your ears to mm. the paralinguistic okay. messages. Yeah. Um, and I've certainly tried that with trainees where we've turned the picture off and just listened or yeah. even listened to an audio recording of a telephone yeah. consultation. And now that telephone consultations are happening quite a lot, they are an important part of recording and listening mm. and understanding the kind of paralinguistic variability in different patients communication that's very interesting what you said about closing your eyes because i know if i'm doing consultations on the telephone i do often close my eyes because somehow you need to really focus not just on what somebody's saying what words they're saying but the kind of way they're saying it and you really need to tune in in a very kind of focused way to do that and i, I often close my eyes when i'm trying to do that um, so it's interesting that you mentioned that as a, as a way of doing it, particularly around the voice. I, I fully agree. I've noticed that whether we are in Zoom meetings or in telephone consultations, the temptation 
for your eyes to drift towards your screen, look at an email or something. So you're effectively not giving your 100% to the patient, whereas if they're in front of you, mm. you'll be looking at them, you'll be making eye contact and conversing with them. We should have the same level of discipline to a telephone consultation so that you're not missing, especially in a telephone consultation, because it's all the more important. You don't have the visual cues yeah. in front of you. But you have got these you... other non-verbal pieces of information. People often say there's no non-verbals on the telephone, but actually I disagree with that. I think there's an awful lot of non-verbal communication on the telephone, but you have to really focus and be aware to really pick up all the, the nuances and details. I know some trainers, and I'd be interested in your opinion about this, also, uh, for example, watch um, television films or, or a film... Um, watch clips from a television or a soap opera for example and ask people to try and identify the emotions in that do you, do you think there's any benefit in that it can be once again it, it can be useful um, but it can also be you may learn some bad habits um, that often I've heard trainers say go and watch EastEnders or go and watch Coronation Street and can you imagine if somebody picks up a very a Cockney style of speech, and then they are practicing in the middle of Manchester. <laughs> and it, it it will both sound yeah. really weird for the for the listening ear if they are doing a very bad attempt at Cockney as well. But at the same time, I remember that a lot of my English teaching happening in school was taught by Indian teachers, and they had the same intonation as speaking Tamil. And I only realized there's a different way of putting emphasis in the words and how the words are being spoken when I watched a film. Um, but then, because films can be Queen's English or Cockney or Liverpoolian or Scottish, yeah. it can be a, a confusing setup. Yeah. Yeah. So I think the best source would be the population you're working with and you're going to be there for a few years. So if you're in a GP training program for three years in the middle of Liverpool, uh, it's nice to get used to the, you're going to be working with those patients and it's nice to get used to the intonation initially of that and then widen that because they are the ones you're going to be encountering every day and whether in the middle of Manchester or Scotland or yeah. Newcastle, yeah. it's nice to understand that, that accent as well. But at the same time, you pick up, you, usually I find the trainees who have children, um, one of the exercises I've always taught is children who are going to school are like sponges. They soak up the local intonation and they are very good at correcting their parents. A lot of my trainees who have children going to the local school realize how quickly they pick up the, for example, the Wigan accent. And, yeah, yeah. and I say, well, more than listening to EastEnders, listen to your children, have a conversation with them in English yeah. because they are learning it and they're speaking it in the local tone as well. Yeah, yeah. And that lot of trainees said that was interesting because what they sometimes do when they go to, go home is revert to their mother tongue. Yeah. And they're missing out the resource the children are bringing in. Yeah. Often they are very good teachers yeah. when it comes to their language intonation as well. Yes, that's that's very interesting and as you say that's very hyper local as well. It's going to it's going to really lend itself to that. I think the other thing that I've sometimes done is um, help people to have a think about intonation by just choosing a very simple sentence like, uh, and perhaps we might try this out. So we might cho choose the sentence like, I'm not really worried. But then I might say to you, I'm not really worried. 
And what does that mean? That really means somebody else is really worried, doesn't oh, yes. it? Or you might say, I'm not really worried, which is kind of like a way of saying, well, I am worried, really. I'm just kind of I'm just kind of checking something out. Or you could say, I'm not really worried. Well, what are you then? That means you're something else, doesn't it? So the same words can have at least three, probably more than that, different meanings. You know, if I if I say I'm not really worried, it might mean I'm more frightened or I'm more concerned or um, I want to say I'm not really worried, but I will be worried if this happens or something like that. So I think that that it might seem like a bit of a parlor game. But in a way, if you take a straightforward sentence and emphasize a different word, you can see how many meanings you can get out of the same words but with different tones of voice or different emphasis kind of thing that will be a very useful exercise to do on a one-to-one teaching um, picking out phrases and sentences both from the patient point of view or what the doctor themselves are using and reflecting it back to them to say if the pause happens at a different part of the sentence as you described how does the meaning change um, it's a very useful exercise in, in nonverbal communication and paralinguistics. I also find that when I sense that somebody is speaking English, but in the cadence of the native tongue, I bring it up not as an intrusive or a, or a microaggressive conversation, but to say, do you find that when you speak it at a certain speed, do people ask you to repeat that sentence? Do the patients ask you to repeat or do they look puzzled? Do you know the reasons behind that? Do you feel that when I speak the same sentence in a different speed, it is understood better? And bring the subject of pitch, tone, frequency and speed. I remember I had a, a, a learner who was who understood the speed, how it can interfere with but the, the communication but then realized that as the time of the consultation got nearer to the end, the speed got faster in trying to get everything done. But then it became an obstruction or a hindrance to that part of the consultation because the patients were suddenly baffled that they couldn't understand yeah. the shared management plan. Yeah. Um, so I, he, he realized he couldn't change that in a sense of urgency. But what he did, which really helped was he opened the communication, the initial introduction to the consultation, explaining that sometimes the speed of which we communicate can get too fast and they may not comprehend what he's saying. So he asked them to stop him and advise him to slow him down rather than just look baffled. So he invited the patient to be part of his communication plan. And he did that as an opening introduction until he got comfortable with the speed mm -hmm. and he felt it meant that the the people in front of them were actively offering feedback to say i'm sorry i think you're getting a bit too fast yeah. and that really helped his, his learning as well so not just waiting for instruction from your educator but invite and open be be frank about the fact that you're communicating in a different language or you you the way you communicate can change speeds but ask them to stop and, and ask him to slow down. It's completely okay. Giving permission 
to the patient to do so. It's a very collaborative exercise yeah. in learning communication skills as well. I, I think that approach would work in a lot of uh, the whole variety of situations as well, because you can imagine, for example, with a patient who doesn't hear very well, mm -hmm. saying to them, look, if, if you find I'm not speaking clearly enough, please stop me and I'll try again. Or somebody who perhaps it, it, you're speaking in a language which is not their first language you can say to them the same or or if you're speaking in a language which is not your own first language is to say look you know I'm, I'm speaking in a second language or whatever um so it will you let me know if i'm not being completely clear or if you need me to to change something i'm saying because also that it's a sort of adult to adult uh, communication that and is less threatening than just sitting there thinking this person thinks I'm doesn't like me or, or doesn't get on with me or doesn't understand what I'm saying or, or whatever. It's, it's a much more open way of communicating, isn't it? So, I mean, I think we've talked about so many different nuances here um, and that patients can use when they're talking, as well as what we're saying ourselves as clinicians. So it really pays to be careful and attention to our own paralytic com communications, especially on the telephone. Uh, and there's more detail about this in the written materials in module 11, if you're new to this. And there's going to be a related talk talk where we discuss body language, which includes posture, gesture, and many other aspects, including touch and other aspects, which can be very helpful in promoting effective nonverbal communication. So thank you very much, Mo. We're going to call it a day there. That'd be brilliant. I just wanted to finish off because we've talked about a, quite a range of approaching how to teach this subject, a quick summary of introducing the subject of paralinguistics like we've done to the learner, uh, to explore the nuances and differences in their intonation, pace, frequency, and either if they are from a different region in UK or they come from a completely different language from a different country, if they are new to the whole aspect of consultation, approaching paralinguistics at the same time as approaching consultation skills would really help, maybe as a tutorial or a conversation. Listening to recorded telephone or video consultations, but ignoring the picture initially and focusing more on the sound and the tone, using examples like the brilliant ones you've given throughout this talk, how a single sentence, the meaning can change depending on where you pause, how you speed things up, and how loud you, you say that. And then there is a construct which we'll be talking more about in the next section on nonverbal skills, where I produce something called a nonverbal communication assessment tool, very akin to COD, where there are word pictures or descriptors for each of these aspects. This is not to say there is the right pitch and the right tone, and there is only one way to speak the language, but it's to give that range within which the message is understood. But if you go beyond the range, left or right, the message can change or can be misunderstood. Uh, these would really help the, an educator to broach this subject. Uh, and with an open mind that this is not specifically tuned because you're coming from India, it will equally work if you're coming from Newcastle and you're working in the middle of Manchester. So this is cross-cultural cross international it's not just specific to a certain group of people even though we are talking about it in if you are new to this area this applies to any learner we may have mm. uh, um, and paralinguistics can help anybody to tune their communication 
to the level where it becomes excellent mm -hmm. and the message is conveyed without any hindrance at all. So mm -hmm. thank you for the opportunity to... Well, I, I think that was a, a really useful summary of the way people could, could think about this and improve things. And as with all communication skills, it's always worth remembering that it's partly about what we hear from our patients, but it's also about what they hear from us. And these things, these skills that we're using kind of can help with both sides of that communication. This podcast was brought to you by NHS Professional Educators, making training available to all.